You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Love is like an aeroplane. You jump and then you pray. Lucky ones remain in the clouds for days. Life is just a stage. Let's put on the best show and let everyone know. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 10th day of October 2010, and inviting the listeners, as always, to check into CorbettReport.com, my main website, where you can find links to previous works by myself, including articles, episodes, interviews, and videos, as well as links to my other websites and those websites that help to support the Corbett Report, including ZeroPointRadio.com, which I am pleased to announce has just picked up a new commercial affiliate, 1670 on the AM dial in the Casper, Wyoming market. So congratulations to ZeroPointRadio.com. And again, they do need our support to continue. So if you do have the monetary resources to help donate to keep ZeroPointRadio.com broadcasting, that will also help to get the Corbett Report message out further, as well as all of those great podcasts that are hosted by ZeroPointRadio.com. I'd also like to remind listeners that I am now appearing as a co-host on the In the Zone broadcast on Republic Broadcasting at republicbroadcasting.org every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Pacific time, which is 12 midnight, technically Sunday morning, on the East Coast of North America. So if you're able to, please do tune in. It's a great conversation between myself and the program host, Lieutenant Eric Schein. And each week we spend an hour going over, well, quite a broad range of subjects and also taking phone calls. So please listen in and try to get your phone calls early because this week the phone lines filled up at the end of the broadcast. And finally, on a note similar to last week, I'd like to once again ask my listeners to continue their efforts to try to get the iTunes store problem resolved with the the iTunes store somehow, for some reason, pointing to the wrong RSS feed for the Corporate Report podcast. I do have one listener who says she was able to subscribe through the iTunes store to the uh, podcast, but I myself and several other listeners are still unable to do so. And uh, I'd really appreciate if people can just report a concern about the podcast to indicate to Apple that it is not pointing to the correct RSS feed. Again, it'll only take one or two minutes of your time, and it will help to get the uh, podcast feeding out normally through the iTunes store again. Of course, you can subscribe through the RSS feed on CorbettReport.com under the subscribe tab. But if you can't do that uh, um, through the iTunes store, then unfortunately there will be a lot of people missing out on the podcast. So once again, please help to contact Apple about that problem. And now without further ado, let's get straight into today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 10th day of October 2010. And now for the real news. 
Startling new footage has been released this week by the International Center for 9-11 Studies, a group that has obtained hundreds of hours of video from the National Institute of Science and Technology representing the video evidence that was examined for NIST's investigation of the collapse of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. In the latest video to be released from that data, three firemen who had been preparing to enter the building can be seen discussing secondary explosions that took place in the World Trade Center after the planes hit. What happened? It was an explosion. It was in the lobby and fucking this, the third explosion, the whole lobby collapsed on us. What was it like? What was it like? Horrible. It's like hell. You don't the, want whole, to know. the whole building just collapsed on us inside the lobby. Is that a secondary explosion? Yes, it was. That was so the planet probably. Yeah, definitely secondary explosion. But we was inside waiting to go upstairs, and on the way upstairs, the whole fucking plane blew, and we just we just collapsed on everybody inside the lobby. Similar to the first tower coming down, secondary. I don't know about the first one, but I know the second was it was terrible. Then there was a third one too after that one. Third explosion after that. Yes, sir. You were everybody was inside the building waiting to go upstairs. And they, they, just, they just let loose. Everything just let loose inside the building. So what, what you told me is that there was plane or whatever hit the building, then a secondary explosion. It was like three explosions after that. We came in after the after the fire. We came when the fire was going on already. We was in the staging area inside the building, waiting to go upstairs. And they exploded. And the, whole, the whole lobby collapsed on the lobby inside. This latest video only adds to an already impressive body of eyewitness testimony and recorded evidence of explosions before the plane impact. Yes, I was right there. I was in the I was down in the basement. Came down. All of a sudden, the elevator blew up. Smoke. I dragged the guy out. His skin was hanging off, and I dragged him out and I helped him out of the to the ambulance. As well as explosions after the plane impacts, but before the collapses. If you could plan, I mean, the absolute worst-case scenario high-rise mission, I mean, you had it on 9-11. On there were numerous secondary explosions taking place in that building. It was con there were continuous explosions. and explosions taking place during the collapses themselves. At that time, uh, maybe 45 minutes into the taping that we were doing, which was maybe a half hour after, there was, uh, it was an explosion. It was way up where the fire was and the whole building at that point bellied out in flames and everybody ran. I mean, we made it outside. We made it about a block. We made it at least two blocks, two blocks. and we started running, floor by floor, instead of popping out. It was like, it was if, if if they had detonated. Dead, yeah, detonated. They were planning to yeah. take down a building. Boom, 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 boom. All the way down. I was watching right. it and running. Although all of this evidence was available to NIST researchers, there is no discussion of it in the 9-11 Commission report, and NIST admits that they did not test for explosive compounds on residue in the WTC remains. Hartford Advocate reporter Jennifer Abel confronted NIST spokesman Michael Newman about this error in the, in the NIST investigation. What about that letter where NIST said it didn't look for evidence of explosives, Abel asked. Right, because there was no evidence of that, Newman responded. But how can you know there's no evidence if you didn't look for it first? If you're looking for something that isn't there, you're wasting your time and the taxpayer's money, Newman concluded.
NIST, however, broke a requirement NPFA 921 of the National Fire Investigation Guidelines, which calls for testing for just such residues. In the report on WTC7, NIST also claims that there was no evidence for explosions in World Trade Center Building 7, citing a lack of audio evidence for such explosions. This, too, is in direct contradiction of recorded evidence easily available to NIST. Yeah, here's one of the guys who can tell you I'm okay, all right? Here, hold on. You want to call, you, you call your mother or something? Curiously, footage of the WTC7 collapse released by NIST to the International Center for 9-11 Studies has no, has no sound prior to or during the collapse of the building, with the sound suddenly and mysteriously being restored after the collapse has taken place. It remains to be seen whether these latest revel revelations will prompt the American citizenry to demand a full congressional inquiry into the deliberate falsehoods and omission of evidence in the NIST investigation, or whether a new public investigation will be ordered based on this readily available evidence. NIST has yet to comment on the latest video release. In other news, the United States has been forced to apologize this week for government-sponsored studies on Guatemalan prisoners in the 1940s, which knowingly and deliberately infected subjects with syphilis in order to test the effectiveness of penicillin. Professor Reverby, what were American doctors doing in Central America in 1946, and what were they doing to their subjects? They were trying to figure out whether penicillin could be used to treat people before their syphilis infection um, took hold and had been uh, already measured. So if you think about it, it's a little bit like the morning after pill, which you take when you think you've had unprotected sex and don't want to get pregnant. They were trying to figure out whether penicillin would work for syphilis, but they needed a pool of infection. And rather, so they went to Guatemala because prostitution was legal in Guatemala, and it was also legal to take a prostitute into a prison for sexual services for prisoners. So they were using prisoners as basically their, their stock of, uh, of observe, ob observed subjects? Right. They started off doing prisoners, and when not enough infection um, was created with the, uh, with the, with the uh, prostitutes, they moved on to actually giving the men um, syphilis itself. Particularly disturbing are the tactics which researchers use to infect the patients when trysts with infected prostitutes fail to result in the prisoners actually contracting the disease. So that's when they moved to this system of trying to um, abrade um, these men and women's hands and then their, um, on their cheeks and then with the men actually uh, on their genitalia um, and to pour the inoculum on them and it required them to literally pull back the man's, um, you know, front of his penis to hold a cotton pledgelet um, with the inoculum um, in place for an hour and a half to two hours. So now, many are noting the historical parallels between this experiment and the Tuskegee experiment, in which hundreds of poor black sharecroppers were left untreated for syphilis for decades in an attempt to monitor the spread of the disease. This letter sent to each man before his spinal tap claimed it was a very special free treatment. Some time ago, you were given a thorough examination. And since that time, we hope you have gotten a great deal of treatment for bad blood. You will now be given your last chance to get a second examination. 
This examination is a very special one, and after it is finished, you will be given a special treatment if it is believed you are in a condition to stand it. Remember, this is your last chance for a special free treatment. The men were told that the spinal taps were a treatment. That shows you some of the deception and deceit involved in the study. And these are physicians saying this so that it has a certain power and authority of physicians saying this. Less talked about are the dozens of other declassified and fully admitted programs to use humans as guinea pigs for biological testing without the subject's knowledge or consent. In the 1950s, the U.S. military infamously subjected soldiers to multiple nuclear blast shock waves to test the effects of radiation on humans. In the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. Army disp dispersed bacteria throughout New York and 30 other major cities in order to test the spread of biological materials. Deaths resulted in some of the cases. February 1956. In the heart of New York, Operation Big City was underway. A Ford Mercury, specially adapted with a hidden exhaust pipe, pumped out bacteria onto the streets of Manhattan. Undercover agents entered the city's subway system. Their cases equipped with tiny motors, which covertly dispersed the bacteria Bacillus globuli. Ten years later, the army returned. Light bulbs filled with bacteria were dropped in front of trains and down ventilation shafts to test how far the bacteria would spread through the subway system. One of the earliest experiments had fatal consequences. In 1951, the army sprayed the bacteria Sorosha marsisums over San Francisco. Eleven hospital patients developed a mysterious infection, and within days, Edward Nevin died from an illness caused by the same bacteria. In 1996, it was revealed that the Center for Disease Control had injected thousands of babies in African countries and 1,500 black and Hispanic babies in inner-city Los Angeles with experimental vaccines without the consent of the baby's parents, resulting in numerous deaths. Look for no formal apology for these and the dozens of other admitted biological tests on unwitting subjects by the U.S. government. Finally this week, in a further sign that the foreclosure crisis in the United States is a consolidation of power by an elite group of bankers who can break laws and steal trillions of dollars with absolute immunity, audio emerged this week of a 9-11 call made by Nancy Jacobini of Orange County, Florida, who believed her house was being broken into. You hear somebody trying to open the front door? Yes, yes. Ma'am? My alarm is going off. Okay. He's talking. He's, he's in. He's in the house. He's in the house. Yes. Where are you at? I'm locked in the bathroom. 
After 10 minutes of panic spent locked in the bathroom, it was discovered that the intruder was an agent of J.P. Morgan Chase, who had illegally broken into the house in order to change her locks, despite the fact that her house was not in foreclosure. According to Carl Denninger of the Market Ticker blog, this is just one of a series of confirmed reports of ba bank-hired agents breaking into houses that are not in foreclosure. That's illegal, Denninger writes. Until the bank has a court order giving them possession, they don't have possession, and they have no right to be there. Last Wednesday, Attorney General Eric Holder announced the Justice Department would begin a probe into mortgage bank foreclosure practices. So far, GMAC, Bank of America, and JP Morgan have all announced that they have frozen foreclosures in 23 states as a result of these illegal practices. Now, please go to CorbettReport.com to download the audio MP3 of episode 152 of The Corbett Report, Crashes of Convenience, United 553, in which we examine the mysterious crash of the Watergate plane. Welcome, my friends, to episode 152 of The Corbett Report podcast, Crashes of Convenience, United 553. United Airlines Flight 553 was a Boeing 737-222, which was en route from Washington National Airport to Omaha, Nebraska via Chicago Midway International Airport on December 8th of 1972. But it was never to make its final destination. Reading from the National Transportation Safety Board's own aircraft accident report, which was filed eight months later in August of 1973, quote, a United Airlines Boeing 737-222 crashed on December 8, 1972 at 14.28 Central Standard Time while making a non-precision instrument approach to, to runway 31L at the Chicago Midway Airport, Chicago, Illinois. The accident occurred in a residential area approximately 1.5 miles southeast of the approach end of runway 31L. The aircraft was destroyed by impact and subsequent fire. A number of houses and other structures in the impact area were also destroyed. There were 55 passengers and 6 crew members aboard the aircraft. 40 passengers and 3 crew members were killed. Two persons on the ground also received fatal injuries. The aircraft was observed below the overcast in a nose-high attitude and with the sound of high engine power just before it crashed into structures on the ground. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's failure to exercise positive flight management during the execution of a non-precision approach, which culminated in a critical deterioration of airspeed into the stall regime where level flight could no longer be maintained. End quote. While all of this might sound, of course, tragic, but perhaps in no way unusual, just a plane crash caused by pilot error, and nothing worthy of investigation. But in this case, there is much, much more to the story, and it connects all sorts of figures, including President Richard Nixon, President George H.W. Bush, and famed CIA operative-slash-self-confessed JFK assassination participant-slash-Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt. Richard Nixon chose E. Howard Hunt to lead his private White House goon squad, the so-called Plumbers Unit. Hunt became famous as the head of the Watergate burglars, but after his arrest for breaking into the Watergate Hotel, while he was sitting in jail, 
Hunt suddenly began sending messages to Nixon that he needed two million dollars to keep his mouth shut. At the same time, Hunt started talking to reporters, saying that he was a CIA assassin. To the thousands of people who believed that the CIA had killed Kennedy, this was earth-shaking news. Hunt was threatening to tell about the Kennedy assassination if Nixon didn't get him the hell out of jail and get him two million dollars. Nixon called up the FBI and told them they had to stop investigating Hunt's activities in Mexico. He said the FBI investigation would threaten to uncover the whole Bay of Pigs thing. The whole Bay of Pigs thing? What's that supposed to mean? Bob Haldeman was Nixon's chief of staff and closest advisor. Haldeman says, It seems that in all those references to the Bay of Pigs, he was actually referring to the Kennedy assassination. Nixon was forced to resign based upon the single charge that he tried to stop the FBI from investigating Hunt. And according to Haldeman, Nixon told the FBI that investigating Hunt would uncover the whole Kennedy assassination thing. But how did Nixon know that Hunt was involved? And if he did know, why did he hire him? And why should Nixon care what Hunt said or what the FBI found out about the Kennedy assassination unless he was involved? Was Nixon involved in the Kennedy assassination? One of the most stunning revelations to be uncovered about Nixon recently is this little gem. It seems that Jack Ruby, the mafia thug who shot Oswald, who was spotted by a Dallas reporter in Parkland Hospital in the area where the magic bullet was found on the wrong stretcher, was working for Congressman Richard Nixon in 1947. Nixon admits that he was in Dallas the day that Kennedy was murdered. Well, actually, he forgot that he was in Dallas the first time he was asked about it by the FBI, but they reminded him, and then he admitted that he was in Dallas. And how does George Bush figure into this story? Remember when Hunt was sitting in jail, demanding that Nixon pay him $2 million in hush money or he'd start talking? Hunt got paid. The money came from this man, Bill Leidke. George Bush's oldest, closest, and most important business partner. Leidke helped Bush found Zapata Offshore. Then, in 1959, when the CIA needed the company, Leidke handed the company to Bush, made Bush the sole owner so that Bush could carry out secret operations without any outside observers getting in the way. The fact that Bush's closest business partner paid Hunt the millions of dollars is just one more connection between Hunt and Bush. But wait! There's more. Remember this man? Leidke's money actually went to him. Ramon Rodriguez. He was a CIA-trained money launderer working in a Mexican bank, and he wrote the actual checks that Hunt received. Uh, I made payments for the uh, Watergate burglars, yes. Twelve years later, in 1984, he was working as a money launderer for the main Colombian drug cartel when Vice President Bush sent this man to ask him for $10 million to help pay for the illegal terrorist war Bush was waging against the people of Nicaragua. Well, the only government uh, mention that he made was Vice President Bush. The request for the contribution made a lot more sense because Felix was reporting to George Bush. Here you have a CIA guy reporting to the old boss. Now, how did Bush know this guy? How did he know he had $10 million, and how did he know that he would pay it? 
Some extremely interesting information to be sure, and probably too much to take in at one go and short of the contextual evidence that's provided in the rest of that documentary from which that audio just came, JFK 2 The Bush Connection, an incredibly important, incredibly information-packed and mind-blowing documentary, which I would highly highly recommend that my listeners check into, so please go to the documentation section for today's episode and click on the link to so you can be taken to a link to JFK2, The Bush Connection, just an incredible documentary with so much information. And that is some of the very interesting information that is in that documentary. And we have their E. Howard Hunt and the Watergate burglars tied in with George Bush and the payoff money men and the JFK assassination. An incredible mixture of people, personalities, places, names, and dates there, but all backed up by copious amounts of documentation. And you don't have to take the word of myself or of John Hankey, the creator of JFK 2, For that, you can actually go to the Smoking Gun Nixon audio tapes themselves and listen to him discussing about getting millions of dollars for Hunt and the other Watergate burglars. Where are the soft spots on this? Well, first of all, there's there's the problem of the continued blackmail, which will not only go on now, it'll go on when these people are in prison, and it will compound the obstruction of justice situation. It'll cost money. It's dangerous. Nobody, I think people around here are not pros to something. This sort of thing mafia people can do. Washing money, getting clean money, and things like that. Uh, we just don't know about those things. We're not used, you know, we're not criminals. We're not used to dealing in that business. It's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to know how to do. That's right. It's a real problem as to whether we can even do it. Plus, there's a real problem in raising money. Uh, Mitchell has been working on raising some money. Uh, feeling he's got, you know, he's got one, he's one of the ones the most to lose. Uh, but there's no denying the fact that the White House and uh, Ehrlichman, Hollum, and Dean are involved in some of the early money decisions. I would say these people are going to cost a uh, million dollars over the next uh, two years. My apologies for the quality of that audio, but of course, that's uh, that's what we have to work with. So unfortunately, that's the best we can get. But suffice it to say, there's a lot more audio of uh, Nixon and his aides talking specifically about Hunt and the other Watergate blackmailers and talking about the whole Bay of Pigs thing and talking about large sums of money. So of course, please start the research for yourself to go and listen to the actual source documentation and tapes that uh, that bear all of this out. But suffice it to say that it's very much the case that when E. Howard Hunt was sitting in prison, he was asking for money and trying to get it delivered through various means. And that's where we start to connect this story into the story of United 553. And in order to fully connect the two, let's turn to a book called Bond of Secrecy by famed CIA operative E. Howard Hunt's son, St. John Hunt. And you can buy an ebook or even an autographed manuscript of Bond of Secrecy from stjohnhunt.com. That's S-A-I-N-T, stjohnhunt.com. Quote, As Watergate deepened, my mother served as the unofficial spokesperson for the jailed burglars. Nixon's personal lawyer, Herb Kalmbach, hired ex-New York City Police Department intelligence unit officer Tony Ulasevich to funnel hush money to the many men whose lives so depended on him. Using codes like the writer, my father, the writer's wife, my mother, the players, 
the burglars, and the script, the money, more than $400,000 were paid out. How much of this went through my mother, I don't know, but she did have many spooky rendezvous at dimly lit bus terminals and airport lockers where keys were taped underneath secret locations. She was worried that she would be kidnapped or worse. I know this because she told me so. She felt like she was being tailed, and probably was. I can only reflect that she was an incredibly brave woman. Charles Coulson called my mother a very savvy woman. She was frightened, under tremendous pressure, and deeply involved in some very serious business with some of the most serious people in the world. My father was viewed as a blackmailer, and my mother the instrument of his bidding. She was out there, by herself, making demands, playing it tough, meeting desperate people in lonely, dark places. She listened, I imagine, to every sound around her. Footsteps echoing down empty streets, she watched shadows moving across vacant buildings, she noticed strangers glancing a little too long or too quickly. She made her way through basement car garages, always checking her rearview mirror. The need for money was almost suffocating. Calls from lawyers, banks, brokers, and debts piled, one on top of another, and another, and another. School bills needed to be paid, the car payment was late, and the children's school tuition was overdue. Multiply this by all the families whose fathers had been jailed for the Watergate burglary, add to that the need for repayment and good-faith gestures, and you could begin to see what kind of pressure she was under. I saw in her face such utter desperation, such loss of hope, such fear and anger. Oh, the anger, the resentment, and the bitterness. She suffered from severe pain due to having broken her back twice. She worried about her weight gain and suffered from diabetes. She had spoken to me several times of divorcing my father, and just when she had planned to make the break, this had happened. This Watergate, like an iron chain tied around her neck. The weight of the world was attached and kept her from her freedom. She had to stay now. She couldn't leave her husband at a time like this, so she endured. More than enduring through struggle, she fought it tooth and nail. She rose to the challenge and faced all the pressures and demons of the nation's angst. Yet, throughout all of it, she tried her best to keep a smile on for her children. She never lashed out, never grew impatient, never withdrew. On the contrary, she reached out even more. I don't know if she knew the end was near, but she worked at being our friend. To each of us, we will always have the memory of stolen moments, of shared secrets, and deep conversations. This was a new woman to us. She opened up about herself and her dreams and losses. She had suffered through ten pregnancies, six babies died in miscarriage, and four babies lived. By December 1972, time seemed to have run out. My parents had made a desperate play to gain back control of their lives and those of the loyal Cubans. The writer and his wife had made a final demand to the President of the United States. Pay up, or we're going to blow this whole thing right up in your face. They had the evidence to link the President to the Watergate scandal, and perhaps it is theorized to deeper and darker things. Nixon, quoted on the tapes, wanted to pay pay off Hunt at all costs. He figured it might cost a million in cash. We could get our hands on that kind of money, he said. On December 8, 1972, She boarded United Airlines Flight 553, scheduled to take off from Dulles Airport, nonstop to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. The purpose of this flight has generated a lot of controversy. The facts are that she was to meet with the husband of her cousin, a man named Harold Carlstead, who owned two holiday inns in the Chicago area. That she was delivering a large sum of money is also fact. 
that some of the bills could be directly traced to the committee to re-elect the president is fact. That she also carried with her almost $2 million in American Express money orders, traveler's checks, and postal money orders has been testified to before the National Transportation Safety Board during the reopened Watergate plane crash hearings June 13th to 14th, 1973, is also fact. That United Flight 553 never made it to O'Hare Airport is also fact. As the big jet closed in on its destination, the pilot received a call to divert the plane and land on the little-used and much poorer-equipped Midway Airport. Missing the landing strip, the plane tore into the surrounding houses, demolishing several, and came to rest amid huge fires and pieces of wing and metal housing strewn in a debris field, which some have likened to a scene of total destruction and absolute hell. Miraculously, the outer markers were in perfect working order moments after the crash. The radio control tower also seemed to have suddenly started working again. What's even more remarkable is that within minutes, there were 50 FBI agents at the crash site. The fire department was called within a minute and a half of the crash, and yet when they arrived, they were told to stand down until the FBI was finished in their search. What were they searching for? The nearest FBI field office was 12 miles away. How could there be 50 agents at the crash site in such a short amount of time? On June 13, 1973, Chairman John Reed of the NTSB told the House Government Activities Subcommittee that he personally sent a letter to the FBI saying, A. Never in living memory had the FBI acted as in the Flight 553 cat crash. B. With what authority did they act under? They later said air piracy. And that C. Before the NTSB investigators could do so, the FBI conducted 26 interviews related to the crash within 20 hours of the crash, and that an FBI agent had gone into the tower immediately after the crash and confiscated the tape recording relating to the flight. On December 8, 1972, just one day after the crash, Nixon White House aide Eagle Krogh was appointed by Nixon as Undersecretary of Transportation, supervising the NTSB and FAA, two agencies investigating the crash. Also on December 9th, White House Deputy Assistant to Nixon, Alex Butterfield, was appointed the new head of the FAA. Five weeks after the crash, another of Nixon's men, Dwight Chapin, became a top executive at United Airlines. Am I to believe that all these facts are just mere random coincidences? I could see perhaps one or two intriguing things which might seem a little curious, but all of this, as well as testimony from eyewitnesses on the ground that said the plane seemed to explode before it hit treetop level, I was taught that if something is too good to be true, it usually isn't. To quote something else, if it smells like smoke, there's probably a fire. This is perhaps one of the greatest mysteries of Watergate. I call upon, I demand that this be reopened, and using our modern technology, the case be reinvestigated for possible sabotage, at the very least, for cover-up. End quote. Once again, St. John Hunt, in his book Bond of Secrecy, talking about the death of his mother, Dorothy Hunt, as she flew with over $2 million in traveler's checks and other certificates and bills that could be traced back to President Nixon as hush money for Watergate. So what did E. Howard Hunt, famed CIA operative, the man who helped run Operation PB success to overthrow our Benz in Guatemala, the man who 
later on his deathbed admitted to being part of the the big operation to kill John F. Kennedy, the man that Nixon had entrusted to lead the White House plumbers in their various burglaries and other activities. What did he think of the situation? Well, he believed that they had murdered his wife. A fact confirmed by St. John Hunt when he appeared on the corporate report earlier this year. After his uh, counsel was appointed uh, by the White House, um, he uh, had to make an appearance, and um, he he pled not guilty, of course. And uh, uh, then he changed attorneys to uh, a gentleman named Bittman. But um, he uh, he pled guilty a week after my mother's death, and uh, she died under very mysterious and suspicious circumstances. And um, and many years later, shortly before his death, he he said his primary concern, of course, after he this is a quote, he said after what they did to your mother, uh, he, he was worried for he was in fear of our lives, his children's lives, and so a week after her death, he pled uh, guilty to uh, conspiracy charges, wiretapping, um, and, and such. He served uh, four years in uh, federal prison. Nor was E. Howard Hunt by any means the only person to think that the crash of Flight 553 was a little bit more than mere coincidence. Former Nixon aide Chuck Colson also later confessed that he believed that it was an FBI-slash-CIA operation. In May of 1974, Colson talked to private detective Richard Bast about his belief that the crash was an act of sabotage. The following is an account from a Time magazine article from June of 1974. Quote, the CIA was involved in all aspects of Watergate, said Colson, as he ticked them off. The agency helped carry out the burglary of the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, destroyed evidence, put out a cover story to camouflage its part in the Watergate break-in, and tried to divert the FBI from investigating it. He confessed to Bast, I don't say this to my people. They think I'm nuts. I think they killed Dorothy Hunt. He was referring to the death of E. Howard Hunt's wife in an air crash in 1972. Colson thought that the agency was trying to silence her. Colson told Bast that he believed Howard Hughes had given $100,000 and even more to the president and his family for their private use. Hughes can blow the whistle on him. End quote. All right, so we have some irregularities, such as the appearance of 50 FBI agents on the scene within minutes of the plane crash that then went and confiscated the recordings of the flight control tapes. And we have the outer markers that flicked off just as the plane was coming into land and flicked on just minutes after it crashed. We have eyewitness accounts of the plane exploding before it hit treetop level. All of these things, of course, that St. John Hunt mentioned in his Bond of Secrecy book, as well as all of the very timely appointments that happened just days after the crash. Key people in key positions running the investigation, being, being appointed by Nixon to then investigate the crash. An investigation that took eight months and was extremely thorough and came out with a very detailed aircraft accident report and you can actually download that online, so I will, of course, throw in a link in the documentation section and highly encourage you to read through that report for yourself to start uncovering some of the other anomalies that were going on in, on that flight, including some extremely interesting conversations that were caught by the cockpit flight recorder 
and I'll read from page 47 of the aircraft accident report, quote, I don't know. Don't know what to say. I get a reaction when I pull the uh, AC. No reaction when you pull the DC, though. You want to call maintenance? Call it in. Is this tape? Or, uh, I'll have to call dispatch. Or this conversation from page 43 of that report. Sounds to me a circuit breaker, perhaps. Huh? Yeah, I just meant, I thought you'd better check everything. End quote. Well, definitely there were some serious problems going on, and those problems were accounted for in the aircraft accident report, talking about problems with the uh, data recorder on the flight and other instruments as the flight was approaching for its landing. And there's also this very interesting section from page 13 of the report, quote, Elevated carbon monoxide levels were found in 27% of the fatalities in the first class section and 76% of the fatalities in the coach section. Elevated hydrogen cyanide levels were found in the captain and in six fatalities in the coach section. End quote. Well, that seems slightly odd, cyanide appearing in some of the victims, but, well, as the report helpfully goes on to tell us, quote, carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide are some of the toxic products of the thermal decomposition of such materials as wool, cotton, paper, and plastics. According to expert testimony during the public hearing, a study of carbon monoxide and cyanide in victims of house fires in the city of Detroit showed the presence of cyanide in all victims of carbon monoxide poisoning, end quote. Okay, well, fair enough. I'm not a forensic expert, so perhaps that really is the case, but still seems extremely interesting to me. But wait, there, there's much, much more. In fact, if you think this is all about Dorothy Hunt and the $2 million plus dollars that she was carrying at the time, well, no, it certainly wasn't. There was, in fact, more to the, this than meets the eye on the first glance. And from that, we turn to a researcher called Sherman Skolnick, who was apparently one of the researchers who was on this case from the very beginning and was doing a lot of the legwork on this case for many years. And uh, that he has some interesting stories to tell about his investigations, some of which might sound like tall, tall tales, but I will include a link to even someone who was personally not a friend of Mr. Skolnick, shall we say, but who still attests to the information that he was able to uncover, including the information about the 45 FBI agents who were on the scene within minutes, according to the, this other researcher. But let's read from Skolnick's report about the Watergate plane crash, as he calls it, about some of the other people who were also mysteriously and coincidentally on board this flight. Quote, The people... Upwards of 12 persons connected in one way or another with Watergate boarded United Airlines Flight 553 on the afternoon of December 8, 1972. They had something in common. That week there has been a gas pipeline lobbyist meeting as part of the American Bar Association meeting in Washington, D.C. It was conducted by Roger Moreau. His secretary was Nancy Parker. Among those attending were Ralph Blodgett and James W. Kruger, both attorneys for the Northern Natural Gas Co. of Omaha, Nebraska. Associated with them were Lon Bayer, attorney for Kansas Nebraska Natural Gas Co., Wilbur Erickson, president, Federal Land Bank in Omaha. This was a belligerent group determined to blow the lid off the Watergate case. The reason? Former U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell and his friends running the Justice Department were putting the spear into Northern Natural Gas. Some officials of that firm and its subsidiaries were indicted on federal criminal charges September 7, 1972 in Omaha, Chicago, and Hammond, Indiana. The charge? 
bribery of local officials in northwest Indiana to let the gas pipeline go through. To blackmail their way out of these charges, the Omaha firm had uncovered documents showing that Mitchell, while U.S. Attorney General in 1969, dropped antitrust charges against a competitor of Northern Natural Gas, El Paso Gasco. The dropping of the charges against El Paso was worth $300 million. A spokesman for Mitchell belatedly claimed in March 1973 that Mitchell had disqualified himself in 1969 because Mitchell's law partner represented El Paso. The Justice Department under Mitchell dropped the charges. Period. About the same time, Mitchell, through a law partner as nominee, got a stock interest in El Paso. Gas and oil interests such as El Paso, Gulf Resources, and others contributed heavily to Nixon's spy fund, supervised by Mitchell. Pipeline official Kruger was carrying the Mitchell El Paso documents on the plane. He had told his wife that he had in his possession irreplaceable papers of a sensitive nature. For months after the crash, his widow demanded, to no avail, that United Airlines turn over to her his briefcase. It later came out in the pipeline trial in Hammond that Blodgett had been browbeating federal officials to drop the criminal charges just prior to the crash. End quote. But wait, there's more. Quote, Mrs. Hunt got on flight 553 with Michelle Clark, CBS network newswoman, going to do an exclusive story on Watergate. Mrs. Hunt, Mitchell, Nixon, the story could have destroyed Nixon at the time. Mr. Clark had lots of insight into the bug- bugging and covering up through her boyfriend, a CIA operative. In the summer of 1972, prior to any major revelations of Watergate, Ms. Clark tried to pick the brains of Chicago Congressman George Collins regarding the bu- bugging of the Democratic headquarters. Miss Clark was sitting with Congressman Collins on the plane. After the crash, Michelle Clark's employer, CBS Network News, ordered and demanded that the body be cremated by the Southside Chicago mortician handling the matter, possibly to cover up foul play. Later, the mortician was murdered in his business establishment, an unsolved crime. We interviewed close confidants of her family who informed us of the details how CBS applied tremendous pressure and offered large sums for silence on the crash details and having her body cremated contrary to her family's wishes. My longtime friend, political activist Dick Gregory, informed me that there had been strenuous efforts to steer him that same afternoon onto United Airlines Flight 553. Luckily, he had changed his mind. End quote. All of that leads one to the very strong assumption that there is more to this crash than mere pilot error. Now, of course, until we can prove otherwise in a court of law, it is assumption. But even if we could not prove that there was conspiracy to sabotage the plane, we can use other pieces of the evidence to convict people of substantially the same charge. Let's turn to an explanation of this legal practice from JFK2, The Bush Connection. So what? They covered it up. Cover-up is not the same as murder, is it? Is it? Well, it depends. If you shoot the president at 12 o'clock noon exactly and you come running up to me and say, I just shot the president. Hide me. Say I was with you. And suppose I do. Suppose I take you in and loan you a change of clothes and say you were with me. What am I really guilty of? Not murder. 
I helped you escape, but I didn't help you kill anyone, and I didn't even know about it until after it happened. I am what is called an accessory after the fact. I might get off with five years, maybe less. But suppose, instead, that while you're shooting the president, I'm sitting at the curb in a getaway car with the motor running. You jump in, and without saying a word, I step on the gas and take off, heading for the airport with two tickets to Mexico in my pocket, one for me and one for you. Why did I buy the tickets? Why was I waiting at the curb with the motor running? And why did I take off in such a hurry? I was in on it. I had to be. I'm an accessory before the fact. And whatever they do to you, they're going to do to me. Because being an accessory before the fact makes you guilty of conspiracy to murder. And so what if you, as president and acting in your constitutional authority as the executive branch of the government, use your powers to appoint your cronies to positions of power over the investigation of a plane crash, all within days of that plane crash happening? Does that indicate conspiracy after the fact? And what if there are FBI agents ready and willing and able to appear on the scene and crawl all over that scene for evidence within minutes of the plane crash, despite the fact that they were 12 miles away from the scene of that crash. Does that also indicate conspiracy, this time conspiracy before the fact? Well, at any rate, this crash was certainly a crash of convenience for the power structure, and we have people like E. Howard Hunt and Chuck Colson and others who strongly suspect, in fact, know that it was sabotage. And it's up to us, all these years later, to continue to dig out the facts and call with St. John Hunt for a new investigation into United 553. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for another episode of the Corbett Report podcast, and asking you to join me next week for episode 154 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Cross of Gold. Drain the veins in my head Clean out the reds in my eyes To get by security lines Dear x-ray machine Pretend you don't know me so well I won't tell if you lie Cry, cause your drought's been brought up Drinking cause you're looking so good In your Starbucks cup I complain for the company that I keep The windows for sleeping rearrange Well I'm nobody, well who's laughing now? I'm leaving your town again And I'm over the ground that you've been spinning And I'm up in the air, said baby hell yeah Well honey I can see your house from here if the plane goes down, down Well, I'll remember where the love was found If the plane goes down, down Damn, I should be so lucky Even only 24 hours under your touch You know I need you so much I, I cannot wait to call you And tell you that I landed somewhere And hand you a square of the airport And walk you through the maze Of the map that I'm gazing at Gracefully unnamed And feeling guilty for the luck And the look that you gave me You make me somebody Oh, nobody knows me Not even me can see it Yet I bet I'm Leaving your town Again and I'm over the ground that you've been spinning
Down.